We are, of course, in Ecclesiastes. If you haven't picked up a handout, we would encourage you to get one and uh, follow along as we talk about the fact that wisdom has value after all. Last week, we discovered that life does not always turn out the way that we expected it would. Ecclesiastes 9.11 said, Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. We certainly would expect that the race would be to the swift, that the battle would be to the strong, that bread would be to the wise, riches to the intelligence, and favor to those with knowledge. So we find this tipsy-turvy aspect of life. We find out that we, in fact, have very little control over the events of our lives, Ecclesiastes 9-11. The end of that, you notice the bold type, but time and chance happen to them all. Time and chance happen to them all. Now, when we talk about chance, we're talking about that which appears to be random, that which appears to be without purpose. Of course, God is sovereign, and we know that all things are ultimately in his hand. But as we look at life, it doesn't seem to have a particular reason behind the events that come into our lives. We learned that the righteous and the unrighteous experience the same events in life. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 and 2, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So now we're seeing the way in which that's based on God's sovereignty. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. We experience both in life. There are people that love us. There are people that hate us. That's a reality. And we don't really know uh, what is going to occur in the days ahead. And then it goes on to say, again with great emphasis, uh, it is said in a variety of ways so that it cannot be missed, it is the same event for all. Since the same event happens, now it says to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. As he who swears, as he who shuns an oath. And we can go on and on. To the one who's moral and to the one who's immoral. The one who reads his Bible, the one who doesn't read his Bible. The one who goes to church, the one who doesn't go to church. And you go on and on and on. The point is that there is no difference between the religious and the unreligious. Between the born again and the lost. And that seems to fly in the face of so much of what we believe and are taught. And so this is rather peculiar. It's, it's an eye-opener. And it helps us to understand why it is that, that people get to the place of saying life is vain. It's meaningless. It's senseless. And it can lead to great discouragement and disillusionment if you have this concept of the fact that if you are doing, quote-unquote, the right things, 
talking a couple weeks ago about schemes, about way in which we think that if we do A plus B, you're going to get C. If we're doing all the right things, the things we were told to do, you know, we're going to church, we're reading our Bible, we're praying every day, and now this difficulty comes into our life, we can start to ask, is God's word true? Well, yes, because that's not what God promised, if you would do these things. We can ask, is God faithful? We can ask, is God just? We can begin to question a great deal in our life's experiences. And one very typical, common response to this dilemma is the question, and I wish I had a dollar for every time I heard it, why has this happened to me? Why has this happened to me? We don't expect to experience difficulties and trials if we are doing what we think is the right thing to do. That is reserved for the ungodly. That is reserved for the unrighteous. And I don't want to continually review, but remember, the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. You can't drive by somebody's lawn and determine whether or not they're godly by whether it is green or brown. You can't look at a farmer's field and look at the yield of the crop and say, oh, he's godly, he's living for the Lord. The same true about floods. And if you remember, we uh, read the passage out of the book of Matthew, where Jesus said, uh, he who hears my word and do it, does it is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. The rains came, the winds blew, and beat upon that house, but it did not fall, for it is founded upon a rock. But the foolish man who hears my words and does not do them, the rain comes, the uh, flood comes, the wind blows, and beats upon that house, and it falls, and great is the fall of it. And I emphasize the fact that the difference is not that there isn't rain, or there isn't floods, or there isn't wind. The difference is the response to those difficulties. So it's not the circumstances in life that are different, it's the response to those circumstances. That shows our true colors. It was Job. And what is remarkable about Job's situation is, of course, the friends thought Job must have been a tremendous sinner for all these things to have happened to him. And they keep prying Job about the secret sins that must be in his life or these things would never have happened to him. And Job continually defends himself and saying, no, uh, that I've been living righteously. And there is that key verse in the book of Job that after all of the sorrows and difficulties and hardships had come upon him, it says that Job in all of this did not sin with his mouth. That he did not charge God with folly. That he did not say that God was unjust or unfair. Uh, he maintained his innocence and he said, yea, though he slay me, referring to God, yet will I trust him. He understood. He understood that difficulty comes to the righteous and the unrighteous. That is so important for us to understand when we go through hardships, when we go through difficulties. It doesn't mean that God is angry 
with me. This morning we talked about how adversity can either drive us away from God or to God. Our right theology will drive us to God and not question whether he loves us, but ask, as David received this morning, strength from the Lord. Uh, Thirdly, we learned that the righteous, oh, I already said that, experience the same events in life. Fourth, one reason that the same events happen to all is due to the time of life that we are in. In Ecclesiastes 9.11, it says, Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle of the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. And then it says, but time and chance happen to them all. I just talked about chance. Now we'll talk about time. Time. As Ecclesiastes is using the word time, we might use the word season, even as the uh, King James uses the word season. For everything there is a season, if you look at Ecclesiastes 3.1. And a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. You see, that is experienced by the righteous and the unrighteous. We're all born, we all die. And there is an appropriate time for that. The scripture gives us three score years and ten. That's how long we can expect to live. But that's not a promise. Uh, There's no guarantee. Some die much younger. Some die much older. But there is a season. There is a time in which people have a tendency to be born and a tendency to die. To be born. The average pregnancy is nine months. But some people are a week or two late. Some are sometimes a month early. But there's a general time to be born, a general time to die. Ecclesiastes 3, 2. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. We all experience those things in our in our daily experience, that there are occasions in which we are laughing, and perhaps in just a brief period of time, we find ourselves weeping. And the scripture teaches us that we need to be sensitive to people in the experience that they are in. We are to laugh with those that laugh. We are to weep with those that weep. For, you see, There is no difference in the reason for the laughter or the weeping. It isn't as though the weeping person needs to be rebuked or that the person who's laughing needs to be rebuked. That if you're going to be a godly Christian, you're always going to be somber and uh, you're always going to be reserved and uh, you're never going to do anything wacky or or, uh, have fun nor the idea that if you're a Christian, you're never going to weep. You're never going to have any sorrow. You always have a smile on your face. And you've heard those kinds of things. Uh, That if you're a Christian, then it's wrong for you to weep or to be unhappy. Well, there's a time to weep. There's an appropriate time to weep. 
there's an appropriate time to laugh. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to brace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time of hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. And as I said, there are these recurring themes that occur in Ecclesiastes. And I liken them to an onion, and you're, and you're peeling it away. And these things that are said in kernel form are repeated, and the nuance continues to grow until we're going to get to chapter 11 and chapter 12, and it's all about the difference between the young and the old. Remember now, uh, the Lord, the days of thy youth, before the evil days come. See, there's, there's a difference in life for the young person and the old person. And Ecclesiastes 12 then describes in poetic form all the difficulties of getting old. Your teeth start falling out, your hair turns gray, and your hearing starts going, and all these other things. So the particular time in life that we are in is going to dictate our experiences. There are things that young parents go through with infants and toddlers that people who are senior citizens don't experience. There's their own set of problems. There are their own set of difficulties. Now, there are exceptions to the rule. That's what we already addressed, that it's not always the race to the swift, et cetera, et cetera. There's always exceptions to the rule. But generally speaking, you expect young people to be in good health and older people to start having physical problems. So I should not be surprised at my age that I have some physical problems that I didn't have when I was 20 and 30. It's hard to imagine that looking at this guy that can hardly make it up the steps used to run 16 miles at a shot. I was much younger then. I was in good shape. I could do those things. I can't do them now. No matter how godly I am, no matter how much I'm going to read my Bible, my body is getting older. Time happens to all. And part of wisdom is understanding the period of time that I'm in. The unique joys as well as the unique sorrows. The reasons to laugh and the reasons to weep. Don't miss the time of life that you are in. So often people want to be younger when they're old, and when they're young, they want to be old. You know, the young person can't wait till they can get married and move out of the house, and do all these other things. They can't wait for that freedom. They can't wait to get older. They miss out on the joys of not having to provide of not having to worry about where the next meal comes from, of getting up and going to work every morning. The older person wishes that they were younger and knew the vitality of life, etc., etc., etc. Wisdom understands that there is a time to life. And everyone is going to experience those times. It's easy when you're young to have a theology that says 
as long as you have enough faith, you're not going to have physical problems. It's harder to maintain that theology when you're 70 and 80. Time. 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 It's easy to talk about always smiling when you are in your prime of life and things are going very well. It's another story when you're going through hardships. Hardships that are associated with the prime of life, the difficulties. So now this quote from Philip Ryken. At this point, some people are tempted to give up and to think that there is nothing we can do except resign ourselves to our fate. You see, you can't do anything about getting old. You can't do anything about, about what God is sovereign over. If the race does not go to the swift, then why run at all? If the battle is not won by the strong, then why prepare for war? If getting smart will not get you more money, then why bother to develop your mind? Since it all comes down to chance anyway, fatalism might appear to be the only honest option. The preacher gives a different response. He commends the relative value of earthly wisdom, telling us to live wisely. The preacher does this first by giving us the example of someone wise, Ecclesiastes 9, 13-15, and then by comparing wisdom to several less advantageous alternatives, Ecclesiastes 9, 16, 18. And we can add to this by making our own application of wisdom to daily life, wisdom exemplified, wisdom prioritized, and wisdom applied. I thought that was a nice, helpful summary. So now as we unfold Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 9, starting in verse 13, we begin by looking at wisdom exemplified. Wisdom can overcome great odds. Wisdom is extremely advantageous. Ecclesiastes 9.14, there was a little city. A, there was a city that was lacking in defenses. It's described in a number of ways. First, there was a little city, meaning that it had not much resource. Secondly, there was a little city with few men in it, all right? Uh, one could conjecture, you know, in the analogy, uh, perhaps there is an uh, unusual disparity between the number of women and men, or the number of children, or the men are off to war and leave the women behind, such as the story this morning of Ziklag, when David's army and uh, David were gone away, and the people that were left... And Ziklag were the women and the children. The point is, it's an illustration. It's an illustration, but not a far-fetched one. It's an illustration that depicts what life is really like. That is, there are times in which a, a city is pretty defenseless. And this city encouraged a huge threat, verse 14. A great king came against it. Great meaning powerful, perhaps wealthy, uh, one that ruled a large kingdom. He was a great king. And in verse 14, he besieged it. That means he fought against it. And then thirdly, he built great siege works against it. That was a very typical way of doing warfare in the Old Testament. Siege works were a, a, a battle strategy in which when you came to a walled city, <clears throat> what they would do 
is they would build uh, mounds of dirt and they would heap it up. And so they would take the time to just build up hills, man-made hills, you know, just kind of like we're seeing out there. There's a nice big hill there that was made from all the ground that has been moved that wasn't there originally. And they build it up so that eventually the hillside is as high as the wall is, and the wall is no longer an advantage, and they can shoot down, and they can actually shoot down over the wall. So here is this great king. He besieges it, and then he builds this siege work. And it also means that they have the city surrounded. People can't come out. They can't get food. They're a prisoner in their own walled city. And they, a lot of times, would just starve them out. They'd just wait for these people till they had to get resources. So here's the problem. It's huge. They're a little city. They have few men in it. And this king comes against it and starts building these siege walls. What are they going to do? It looks pretty hopeless. It looks like they're outmanned, obviously, and so outpowered. See, a wise man caused the city to be spared. There was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Number one, there's no mention of how the victory was achieved, only the agent by which the victory was achieved. It doesn't say how the wise man did it. That's not the point. The point is that this wise man had a plan, had a strategy that overcame the power of this mighty king. He saw a way out. He developed a plan. Strategy in warfare is still extremely important. Uh, Commanders go to military school to learn strategy, uh, to talk about placement of soldiers on a battlefield. Uh, Battle lines that are drawn. Uh, Supply lines are extremely important. That in battle you don't get ahead of uh, the supplies for food and uh, for the uh, fuel for tanks, etc., etc., there has to be a lot of planning that goes into warfare. But it was achieved by the wisdom of a poor man. D. However, the wise man's wisdom was not appreciated because he was poor. Notice, but there was found in it a poor wise man. That actually becomes the focal point. That is key. He's a poor wise man. And he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. He was wise, but he was poor. Now, notice how that fits the context. Ecclesiastes 9.11. Again, I saw unto the Son that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Notice the analogy here. This king is coming. He's strong. He's powerful. But the battle's not always to the strong. Nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent. The thought is that if you are going to be wise, you're going to be rich. But this man's wisdom was despised even though it was effective. Even though it brought deliverance. 
people failed to see the value because solely he was poor. It didn't fit the paradigm. It didn't fit the expectation. People thought, if you're really wise, you're rich. And if you're poor, it's because you're stupid. Well, application. All too often, still, people associate wisdom with riches. There is a tendency still today to think that if a person is extremely rich, therefore, they're going to be a good leader. The more money they have, the more successful they are, then obviously, they're the best person to lead. Ipso facto, they wouldn't be rich if they weren't wise, is the thought. And if this person is poor, then obviously you don't want to raise them up to a place of position or authority because they haven't achieved anything in life. Even though this man brought victory to the city. His accomplishments were overlooked. They weren't valued. They weren't appreciated. It isn't because he didn't have something to offer, but it wasn't appreciated. Two, wisdom prioritized. Wisdom is better than the alternative. Key word in this section is better. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise men in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So A, wisdom is better than physical strength in a powerful position. But I say to you, wisdom is better than might. Number one, the idea is that wisdom is preferred for it is more useful or advantageous. Even though wisdom is better, it is often not prized. But I say to you, wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised. So it's carrying through on that thought. If the man's poor, then all bets are off. Then his wisdom isn't going to be appreciated. The result is that the poor man's wisdom is not listened to. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. People pay no attention. He speaks. But people aren't going to hearken. Simply because he's poor. Because people think that riches and wealth goes with wisdom. Number five, nevertheless, the soft words of the poor wise men are better than the boastful words proclaimed loudly by a foolish ruler. The works of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. So this powerful ruler that's going to boast in his power and his might and who's going to bombastically proclaim what he's going to be able to do and achieve, follow me! And we will be successful. And the poor wise man, 
whose voice isn't heard says, I don't think that's a very good idea. That's not really the way to go. That's not what God would have us to do. But because he's rich, and because he's powerful, his words are heard. And the poor man, though his words are filled with wisdom, he's ignored. He's ignored. We must be careful, even in Christian circles. Sometimes there are situations in which people are placed in places of authority simply because they are a successful businessman, simply because they have a great deal of money. And as a result, they're rewarded with places of high position, where the poor man is all too often overlooked. And James speaks to that as well. B, wisdom is better than military armaments. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. This is just a continuation of the, of the analogy that was given earlier about the powerful king coming against a, a little city. Wisdom can be a great deterrent to war. Um, sometimes diplomacy is better than armament. Wisdom can be a great advantage in war. We talked about strategy. Wisdom spares, whereas foolishness can do more damage than weapons of mass destruction. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. One person to, can do great harm in destroying peace. That is true in any kind of a setting. In any kind of a setting. Okay. One person can overthrow the apple cart. That's true in a church. That's true on a school board. That's true in politics. That's true in any gathering. Any gathering. All it takes is one person to do great harm. You would think that that's incongruous. You wouldn't think that one person could have that kind of an effect. Back to James. Our words are like a spark that sets a forest on fire. That one little word can spread and do incredible harm. You wouldn't think it. That one person could make such a drastic difference. But it is true. Third, wisdom applied. Wisdom has limits and folly has dangers. A reputation for wisdom takes a lifetime to build, but can be destroyed in a moment. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give to it a stench. So here's this perfume, supposedly costly, and great care has been made to make this perfume extremely uh, desirable, and it develops a stench because of dead flies. It's talking about how something very costly, something very valuable can be so easily ruined. Then it says, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Wisdom and honor takes a lifetime to establish. You don't grow wise 
overnight. It takes experience. It takes thought. It takes an ongoing relationship with God. Wisdom takes time. Honor, reputation. It takes time for people to notice. For people to see that you're faithful. You can't prove faithfulness in a day. You can't prove faithfulness in a week. And you can't prove faithfulness without difficulty, without hardship, without perseverance. It takes time. It takes time. And a person can give themselves diligently for years and build up a reputation, be known as a person of wisdom, to be known as an honorable person, a person who's held in good reputation, a person who's looked up to, a person who is admired, a person who is respected. And then they do one foolish thing, a sin, an action, a response that tears all that down. All the weight of years going up in smoke because of one action, one day, one decision that just totally undermines that wisdom and that honor and that reputation. And the person falls. That's how important wisdom is. And that's how destructive foolishness can be. So you see, there's a a great advantage to wisdom in this topsy-turvy world of which it seems as though the same event happens to all. And yet, wisdom makes a difference. B, wisdom leads a person down a right path, whereas foolishness leads a person astray. Verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Actions speak louder than words. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he's a fool. The simple thing of walking down a road, and it says to everybody that he's a fool. I had a a fella, uh, and uh, I would say that he's a friend in the loosest sense of that word. We were acquaintances, and we would hold out, hang out together every once in a while. But he was really nutty. And he used to like to do a lot of things uh, just kind of to show off and to impress and Usually they were pretty foolish and stupid. And, uh, you know, one, for example, uh, in uh, science class, we, you know, we'd have uh, Bunsen burners and, you know, there'd be uh, uh, gas uh, uh, on the jets on the uh, lab tables. Well, he'd, he'd take a hose and he'd, he would uh, suck a whole lot of uh, gas into his mouth and he would light a uh, 
fire, light a match and breathe out and become this human fire torch. You know, just blow it out and, you know, everybody would be, wow, you know, and stuff. And one day I, uh, I had, uh, as you may know, I had an Austin Healey convertible. And those things sit really, really low on the ground. And it's a very small car. And I was driving on 422 bypass with the top down, and he was sitting in the passenger seat, and he leaned over the uh, car door, because the window's down and, and the top's off, and so he's up on the seat, leaning over the car, holding on to the side, and in a spoon in his hand, and he was dragging the spoon along the ground to watch the sparks fly. And you know, the sparks are flying as I'm driving 60 miles an hour, and I'm saying to him, what are you doing? Get in here. Sit down. You know, I didn't want the guy falling out and on his head. Anybody who would drive by knew that he was a nut. No sign had to be posted. You didn't have to wear a great badge. All you had to do was just observe his behavior, and you knew the kind of person that he was. You weren't going to entrust your life to him. You weren't going to make him the next class president, all right? He, he demonstrated his foolishness. The point is, in the most mundane and simple areas of life, such as even simply walking down a street, a lot of times, you can see the foolishness. Of people. Little things in life. It isn't always about enemies of war coming against the city. But this declining to the right hand or to the left. So the conclusion. Conclusion. Time and chance happen to all. There's a lot of things in life that can't be simply explained by life's choices. Sometimes life doesn't seem to make much sense. And then there's time. The season of life that we're in. The experiences that we are facing. Single people. Married people. People with children, people without children, people with elderly parents, people with no parents. There are times. There are times. But in those times of which we all share in common, there's the opportunity to exercise wisdom, or foolishness. And there's a great advantage of responding to wisdom in the very same circumstance that somebody responds in foolishness. And it will make or break your reputation. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us Help us to see the value of wisdom. 
Help us also to see the limitations of wisdom. It is always, always appropriate, beneficial to make wise choices. But even when we make wise choices, it doesn't always turn out the way that we anticipate, the way that we'd expect. And yes, wisdom understands that also. And wisdom rejoices in God's sovereignty and places ourselves under his authority to do with us as he feels just. And in so doing, though we may be poor and though we may not be respected because we are poor, nonetheless, we're acting wisely. We're acting wisely. Even when others don't appreciate it. God does. Bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.